0: Beloved, what uh, has been consuming my prayer, especially uh, really starting on Friday and then especially yesterday, even through this morning, was, Lord, let me deliver this sermon. Um, Let me deliver this sermon. I had to, this was one of the things I had to clarify with the first service, because I had mentioned that, and then at the end, I thanked the Lord for letting me uh, do the sermon once, and Lord, let me do it again. And I had to let the congregation know at the very end, before Gary dismissed them, that um, I'm not thinking that I might go home to be the Lord right this second. That is always a chance, but it was more like I don't want another one of those ER episodes that would take me away from my beloved Santan Bible Church and the blessing to deliver this sermon on Psalm 23. Uh, sometime this afternoon, we'll pick up the new one, and it will be, Lord, let me uh, deliver this First Thessalonians introduction and summary that is planned for next week. And beloved, the way we pray reveals our hearts. It reveals our minds. It is an indication, it's like a periscope into what is consuming our thinking and uh, our understanding of Scripture, our understanding of theology. It's not that our prayers need to be uh, long-winded or theologically complex. They could be theologically complex. They could be theologically simple. One is not necessarily better than the other. I even think of, um, in the last message on Hebrews, uh, there was an understanding of the beautiful succinctness of this closing doxology there that is a reminder that sometimes we can die of wordiness. But again, if we have the word of God richly dwelling within us, if it is consuming our thinking, then what we pray will be a reflection of that. We will take the things of God and reflect it back to him by virtue of our prayer, by virtue of our praise. And Beloved, as you would open your Bibles to Psalm 23, there is no more beautiful, stellar example of a prayer and of a heart cry of praise to God than Psalm 23. This is possibly the most well-known psalm. It's very possible that many of you may know this by heart. You may have memorized it. Uh, it's been said that this is, that Psalm 23 is the pearl of the psalms. Uh, Spurgeon calls it the divine ode among the Psalms. Another author said this about Psalm 23. He said, Psalm 23 has charmed more Greece to rest than all the philosophies of the world. It has sung courage to the army of the disappointed. It has made dying Christian slaves freer than their master. Beloved, this psalm is filled with poetry and piety. Its sweetness and simplicity are unmatched. Beloved, listen as I read Psalm 23 from the Word of God in your hearing. It is a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His namesake. Yea, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Thus ends this reading of God's, Word, may he write its eternal truth on our hearts. Attend to it as such, beloved. This psalm is a beautiful psalm. And what we see in this psalm are three movements, three movements of praise, of heart cry to the Lord. And basically they are these, beloved. My great shepherd guides me. My great shepherd guards me. And my great shepherd will gladly receive me. Now, if you're familiar and you've been here at Santan Bible Church for a while, you might notice a slight little distinction there that's a little off-kilter of what I normally do when I bring this. There was this me, me, my, my through this. And the reason I'm doing this, beloved, is it flows from the text. Psalm 23 is a massively personal psalm. There are no we, us, they, or them. It's only I, me, and my. In the first three verses, it's the Lord, he and him. And then in verses four and five, he shifts and he directs to the Lord singularly, you and yours. So again, this is a very, very personal psalm. Normally in my sermons, and my language, when I come to the applications, I will say you or I'll say we. If it's some kind of warning or rebuke, I always try to throw myself in the mix and I'll say we or us. If it's a particularly beautiful blessing, I will say you, plural youth," speaking of my beloved Santan Bible Church. But what I want to try to do this morning is reflect the heart of David, the heart of the psalm. And that is why I say my great shepherd guides me, guards me, and will gladly receive me. And what I want you to do, beloved, is even as you would hear this preached, you in your heart think me and my, because this is a very personal psalm between me and God, and if you are in Christ, if you are a sheep, if he is indeed your great shepherd, the guardian of your souls, then this is a very personal psalm for you as well. And may God speak in the silence of our hearts as we would study this and meditate upon it as we wait upon him. May our heart cry be, O oh, great shepherd of my soul, instruct my mind, stir my heart, challenge my will. Save my soul, direct my steps. This should be our earnest plea, our humble longing. And it certainly is always, even on this side of the new birth in Christ, our pressing need. Let's look at the first movement, beloved. My great shepherd guides me. We see this in the first three Verses. Uh, if you were here when we finished our last sermon in Hebrews, you may remember he had the beautiful language in Hebrews thirteen twenty, referring to Christ, referring to God as the great Shepherd of the sheep. Um, that's paired with Peter, the Apostle Peter, in 1 Peter 2, 25, where he says, you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. And I mentioned there that is there, of all the incredible titles of God, of all the names and titles of Christ, is there a sweeter title than the shepherd of his sheep? My Lord, my shepherd. I'm not sure that there is, and that is precisely what King David has in his heart. Look at the beginning. It is a psalm of David, it's a Davidic psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. Literally, the Lord my shepherd. And just a quick note on the human author King David knew what being a shepherd was all about. You may remember in his youth, David was a shepherd. So he knew all about what it meant for a shepherd to care for his flock, to lead his flock, to watch out for his flock, to provide for his flock, to find a lost sheep and to bring it back into the fold. And he knew also that it, what it meant and what it entailed for a shepherd to protect his flock. You may remember that he said that when he, when he was given the account of his time as a youth, as a shepherd, King David said that when a bear or a lion would come and threaten the flock, I would rise up and strike it. So David had that understanding. And so he says, the Lord is my shepherd, literally Yahweh Rohi, the Lord my shepherd. This is one of those couplets of taking the covenant name of God Yahweh in the Old Testament. It's the same dynamic as Yahweh Nisi, the Lord my banner, or Yahweh Sitkanu, the Lord our righteousness, or Yahweh Rapha, the Lord your healer, Yahweh Mikadesh, the Lord your sanctifier, or Yahweh Yairah, the Lord will provide. But this here, the Lord my shepherd, is a beautiful, tender, precious title of God that we begin this great psalm with. It highlights the great needs of the sheep. And the many cares of the shepherd. A shepherd has many cares. Now, of course, our great shepherd, God, the Lord, Yahweh, as our shepherd, he is not burdened by a multiplicity of cares, but there are many cares. It highlights his, that he is mighty, and it highlights our frailty. We realize this. And this flows in the kind of Old Testament backdrop of this imagery of. God being our shepherd. I'll read just a few verses to set the stage and remind us. Psalm 78, verse 52. He led forth his own people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. Isaiah 40, verse 11. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Or Ezekiel 34, Verse 11, God says, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. So again, beloved, the Old Testament backdrop is that God is a shepherd. He leads forth his people. He guides them. He tends to them. He carries them in his bosom, he seeks them out, he searches for them, and he delivers them, he cares for them. This is the picture that we open up here. Now, having said this, we understand that Psalm 23 doesn't come in isolation. Psalm 23 comes after, good guess, Psalm 22. Psalm 23 comes before, yes, Psalm 24. And Psalm 23 is the blessing psalm, which comes after the gruesome psalm. So if we go back, and all three of these, Psalm 22, 23, and 24, are from David, and they're all messianic psalms. They're about Christ. And Psalm 22 begins, verse 1, you will perhaps recognize these words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Verse 7, All who see me sneer at me. They separate with a lip. They wag their head. Uh, Verse 15, my tongue cleaves to my jaws. My mouth burns with thirst. Verse 16, they pierce my hands and my feet. Beloved, the point is, it is only after reading the gruesome psalm that we can rightly understand and appreciate the blessing psalm, and that leads us into the beginning of verse 23, the Lord my shepherd. We could say it this way, it is only on this side of the great sacrifice of the shepherd that we're able to know the great sweetness of the shepherd. And this is part of what Jesus Christ was talking about when he was talking to his apostles, even in our scripture reading from earlier, John chapter 10. In verse 11, do you remember, Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd, that's Psalm 23 and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's Psalm 22. So Psalm 22 is the second of this trilogy of messianic psalms. Uh, Psalm 22 is all about Christ on the cross. Psalm 24 is all about the glorious return of Christ. Uh, Verse 10 of chapter 24, the last verse, who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. You see, Psalm 22 describes the first advent of Christ, the first coming of Christ, culminating in crucifixion. Psalm 24 describes the second advent, the second coming of Christ, culminating in his exaltation. And Psalm 23, 23 is in between the two. It is a perspective on life here on earth for the redeemed, for those who are sheep in his sheepfold. It's only those who have entered into the sheepfold, dear friend, understand this, it is only those who have entered into the sheepfold that can rightly say, the Lord my shepherd, with an understanding of the sacrifice and price that the shepherd paid, which is given in Psalm 22. That's the same kind of dynamic that Jesus said even earlier in that parable of the shepherd in John 10, in verse 4, He said when he puts forth all his own, this speaking of the shepherd, he goes before them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. Beloved, you and I follow him because we know his voice and we know his voice because we are his sheep. We are the sheep of his pastor. And so what is the import of our ability, our undeserved privilege to say the Lord, my shepherd? There are many. Isaiah 41, verse 10, God there says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And then back in our passage, uh, because the Lord is my shepherd, look at what David says, I shall not want I shall not want. It could also be translated, I do not want. What King David is saying, even reflective in the Hebrew, is he's saying, I do not want, and I shall not want, I will not want. The mere fact, the mere astonishment that Yahweh God is my shepherd is sufficient. I need nothing else. Uh, This ties into another psalm of David, Psalm 34, verses 9 and 10. There David writes, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. Watch this. For to those who fear him, there is no want. They who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Beloved, his goodness, what he provides to you and me is right, is sufficient. If you're lonely, when I'm lonely, God will meet me and comfort me. If I'm discouraged, he will lift me up. And beloved, my great shepherd... Our great shepherd, I can't get away from the you application. Our great shepherd moves in mysterious ways. Sometimes he takes in order to give. Sometimes he empties before he fills. And it is all good, it is all right. And so I must always be content. I must always be content with this in mind. I must always be content with what I have and never be completely content with what I am in the sense that I must always excel yet more. I must always strive on the side of eternity, on the side entering into finally, completely, eternally into my Father's house. I must strive yet more to become more and more like Christ, like my Savior, like my Great Shepherd. And beloved, verse 1, this is, This is, these words, this promise, this statement of fact and truth and doctrine is the answer to every possible difficulty, every conceivable trial, every imaginable fear and every potential hardship I might encounter in this world and that you might encounter. All of these are answered completely and sufficiently in verse 1, but then we go from there and David unpacks even more in verses 2 through 6. Look at the verse beginning of verse 2 he says he makes me lie down in green pastures literally in pastures of grass David who again had this understanding of a shepherd it's like like a sheep that lies down to rest in the lush meadow of a pasture. so also we find rest in his promises we find rest in the relationship and the privilege that understanding God is my shepherd Even tying into the eternal Sabbath rest that the author of Hebrews speaks of, that we have a down payment. All of this, this statement here from David of him leading me into green pastures is a down payment of the eternal Sabbath rest that awaits me when I enter into the presence of the Lord, awaits all of those men and women that enter into his presence. He continues, verse 2, Uh, At the end, he leads me beside quiet waters, literally waters of resting places. Uh, These are, the point here is these are not dry, dusty, desolate places. These are lush, pleasant, joyful places. Now, having said that, this does not at all mean, and we want to be very careful we don't misunderstand any element of the psalm, this does not mean that on this side of eternity, We will have a life free from misery, free from difficulty, free from hardship. Christians have been tortured. Christians are tortured. Christians have starved. Disease comes in. There's all kinds of things that come in, but through that all, God leads us as our caring shepherd into the green pastures and the quiet places, excuse me, of quiet waters that are lush, pleasant and joyful to the soul. In Revelation 7, verse 17, uh, John recorded this vision of the victorious Lamb, Jesus Christ. Again, Revelation seven seventeen, the Lamb in the center of the throne, watch this, shall be their shepherd and shall guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from every eye. Beloved, that is the promise from my shepherd, from our shepherd. And also notice here back in Psalm 23 verse 2, it says he leads me, he doesn't drive me. Uh, The shepherd doesn't drive the flock. A a cattle rancher may drive the cattle. Uh, You can try to drive a herd of cats to use the modern terminology. But sheep are led. The shepherd leads the sheep. That's one of the other brilliant reasons God uses this beautiful tender imagery of a shepherd and a sheep. So that when I have an emptiness of spirit or a blankness of soul God right here restores he restores my soul and we can ask the question God does this uh, what means does God employ and God gives us the answer in Psalm 19 we just go back for Psalm Psalm 19 you may remember in verses 7 through 9 that uh, there we see six titles of the Word of God with six characteristics of the Word of God with six effects of the Word of God. And in verse 7, Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Same language. So the Bible, the Word of God in your hands is perfect. It's complete. It's sufficient. We need nothing else. It's lacking nothing. So employed by God, the Bible has the power to give life to the dead, to put life where there was no life before, and for those already alive in Christ, employed by God, the Bible has the power to restore and renew the child of God. And in this case in particular, in this particular case, Psalm 23 itself becomes the green pastures. It becomes the quiet waters. It itself restores my soul so that when my Soul is sorrowful, he revives it. When it's sinful, he sanctifies it. When my soul is weak, he strengthens it. He restores my soul. And he continues unpacking this beautiful truth. Look at verse 3. He guides me, at the end of verse 3, he guides me in the paths of righteousness. Uh, This is a lesson that apparently King David taught his son Solomon. Solomon. In in Proverbs 4.11, Solomon, the son of David, said, I have directed you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in upright paths, the paths of righteousness. And this dynamic that we see here, it is not primarily for our comfort, though we will see comfort coming here shortly. It is primarily for the glory of God. He guides me in the paths of righteousness, look, for his namesake. The same dynamic that David has in Psalm 31, verse 3. You are my rock and my fortress for your namesake. You will lead me and guide me. This is the same dynamic, the same motivation, the same purpose, the same goal as the co-laborers that John the Apostle wrote in his third epistle, 3 John 7, speaking of those who are co-laborers in the missionary work of the gospel. John said they went out for the sake of the name. Or the apostles, the early apostles, when they were suffering early persecution from the council in Acts 5.41, the apostles went on their way, watch this, rejoicing they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And that's the path of righteousness that God had for the apostles. It was the path of righteousness that God had for the co-laborers. And notice also back here in our text, again at the end of verse 3, it's not the path of righteousness, it's the path, the plural of righteousness. And what that means is whatever God would have me do, whatever that path may look like, it could be a pleasant path, it could be a torturous path. Whatever the world would say is life's lot. Uh, The believer, we say whatever is God's providence, whatever it may bring, be it famine, disaster, tragedy, old age, even death. All of these are the paths or are individual paths of righteousness for me at that point in time for you. So, beloved, my great shepherd guides me. The second movement is my great shepherd guards me. And this is in verse 4. Uh, My shepherd provides for me. My shepherd protects me. Again, that same dynamic that we saw in David, verse 4. I've got to bring in the King James uh, word here, and it comes well from the Hebrew. Yea, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The shadow of death, that's one Hebrew word. That's the strongest Hebrew word for darkness. It describes a deep darkness, a thick gloom. A Job liked to use this word, and I I don't know if I should say he liked to use this word, but in his context, in his situation, he used this word often. He used this word to translate the darkness of his eyelids when they were strained from weeping. Job 16, verse 16, he said, My face is flushed from weeping, and deep darkness, same word, deep darkness is on my eyelids. He also used it to describe the darkness of the abode of the dead. Chapter 38, verse 17, Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? So again, this is a powerful word, and what's amazing is built into this most powerful Hebrew word for darkness is this element of how it's rightly translated here, the shadow of darkness. Because this, for the sheep of the shepherd, for the child of God, for the born again on this side of the cross believer, the Death has no substance. The substance has been removed. The only thing that remains for the sheep, for the child of God, for the born-again man or woman is its shadow. You see, the shadow of a dog can't bite. The shadow of a sword can't kill. And in the same way, the shadow of death can't destroy the child of God. Donald Gray Barnhouse, he was the mid-20th century pastor of uh, Historic Tenth Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He was telling the story of when he was driving to his wife's funeral with his children. And they were driving through a small town and they came up to a, red, uh, to a stoplight and a truck, B- Dr. Barnhouse said it was the biggest truck he'd ever seen, pulled up next to them. And the truck cast this long sweeping shadow across a snowfield. Dr. Barnhouse said to his children on their way to their mother's funeral, he said, children, Would you rather be run over by the truck or by the shadow? And Dr. Barnhouse, Pastor Barnhouse, reported back that his youngest child said, well, that shadow can't hurt us. In his response to his children, he said, that's right. And death is a truck, but the shadow is all that ever touches the Christian. The truck of death ran over Lord (laughs) Jesus Christ. Only the shadow has passed over your mother. Beloved, that's the same kind of dynamic that God is giving to us here in Psalm 23. And by the way, the mere presence of a shadow demands light. It demands a source of light somewhere. Isaiah 9-2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light shines on them. And so the result of all these promises, beloved, is what we see at the end of verse 4. Yea though, I walk, yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I fear no evil. I fear no evil, beloved. The application of Psalm 23 has comforted countless dying saints throughout the ages. And there is a flip side. Dear friend, if you are here This morning, and you're not trusting in Jesus Christ alone by faith alone. Understand this. There is a flip side to this. In the same way that I mentioned before, only those who understand the application of Psalm 22 and the substitutionary sacrifice of the man Jesus Christ at the cross can truly say the Lord, my shepherd. So also there is a flip side to this whole dynamic of the light of God's revelation driving away the darkness. And this could be for someone that is, for any who are not in the sheepfold, including those who may even be masquerading as a wolf or a goat. You see, God turns light into thick darkness by way of judgment. Jeremiah 13, verse 16, he appeals to the nation, give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness and before your feet stumble on the dusky mountains. And while you're hoping for light, he makes it into deep darkness and turns it into gloom. So there is a warning, there is a flip side, but understand this, friend, there is always hope. Jesus Christ opens his arm for any that would come to him in repentance, anyone that would truly from their heart ask for forgiveness. And he would then adopt you into his family. He would place you in the sheepfold where Yahweh would be your shepherd. For those who are in the sheepfold, I fear no evil. And does he say, as we would continue on in a moment, does he say, I fear no evil because you have made me strong. No, I fear no evil because your rod and your staff they comfort me because you are with me i fear no evil for because you are with me and what we have here is the shift that i mentioned before in the first three verses he was speaking of god in the third person the lord my shepherd he and him but now it's speaking directly to the lord you 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 so i fear no evil because of you not because of me. That's what the sheep understands. And he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. They comfort me. Because the Lord is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Psalm sixteen, eight. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Because of that, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. They comfort me. This this word comfort, it's an interesting word. In the book of Isaiah, there's 66 chapters in Isaiah. The first 39 chapters are called the book of chastening because God is addressing his people, the nation of Israel, with words of chastening because of their rebellion. But then there's this big shift in chapter 40 through the last chapter 66 where that section is called the book of comfort. And Isaiah 40, verse 1, captures that well with the words, Comfort, oh, comfort, my people, says your God. Beloved, your great shepherd, my great shepherd comforts us, he comforts you. And so, because of that, I'm not discouraged and paralyzed. I'm encouraged and galvanized. I'm not confused and alarmed. I'm calm and composed. And understand this: when I when I say this, I'm not saying I've yet attained the goal. I'm not saying that in any way, shape, or form I do that perfectly. But by God's grace and mercy, with the indwelling, with the strength and might and power of the indwelling Holy Spirit of my great Shepherd, this is what we have realized in our life. And there's one beautiful element here back in this passage. Uh, I mentioned this even at the end of Hebrews. Prepositions matter. Uh, Hebrews 13 verse 21 if you're here when I preached on that the word there is through Jesus Christ and I think at the time I made the point that in that context that little preposition it was even more beautiful even more powerful to say it is through Jesus Christ rather than by Jesus Christ for Jesus Christ or even in Jesus Christ but by way of introduction to this here notice in the text here our courage is not while walking in in the valley of the shadow of death it's walking through the valley of the shadow of death and beloved there is an infinite difference between the two my shepherd takes me through the veil into the presence of God and he takes me through the valley of the shadow of death into the eternally green pastures of his glory and by the way when I picked this psalm after finishing Hebrews, as I think I mentioned before, I had no idea that God was going to give me this built-in illustration. This last week as I was meditating even on my mortality, the words here have been so powerful and so good. Beloved, death is not the house, it's the porch. Death does not for the believer, for the sheep. Death does not extinguish the light of the Christian. It puts out the lamp because dawn has come. And so we, as new creatures in Christ Jesus, approach death with hope and joy, not despair and misery. And in the context of here of going not, not walking in the valley of the shadow of death, but through the valley of the shadow of death, we go through the dark tunnel of death and emerge into the light of immortality. We don't die, but we but sleep so as to wake in glory. That is God's promise. That was God's promise to my beloved Margie. That's God's promise to me. That's God's promise to each and every one of you. You will awake in his presence. And by the way, the valley of the shadow of death in verse 4 is one of, obviously, the path of righteousness of verse 3. Because even expanding from the imagery, the shepherd must move the sheep in order to find the green pastures. So, my shepherd guides me. My great shepherd guards me. Finally, in verses 5 and 6, my great shepherd gladly receives me. He welcomes me. And what we see in verses 5 and 6, we see a table, a cup, and a home. And there is a shift in imagery here. There's a shift in metaphors. He shifts from a shepherd to a host. And in both cases, both the shepherd and the host have total responsibility for those that are in their care, to provide for them and to protect them. Verse 5, he says directly to God, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You prepare a table for me. And why, we could ask the question, why would the enemies be present at the table? Beloved, this is is an indication of intimacy by the Lord, by your shepherd, or here your host preparing a table for you. And it's a sign of victory. It's a pointing forward to the fact that Lord Jesus Christ is victorious over all the enemies, over sin, over death, and over hell. So that, in life, we very often, in times of weakness, and not even necessarily sinful weakness, we say, Lord, I'm afraid. And your loving shepherd, my loving shepherd says, sit down and eat. Come to the table and eat. It's a picture of victory. It's a picture of intimacy, which continues. Look at the rest of verse 5. You have anointed my head with oil. And, and the oil here... We see oil in Scripture in the New Testament and also in the Old Testament where it's the oil of medicinal purposes. This is not the oil of medicinal purposes. This is the oil of celebration. This is the oil of a feast. This is the oil of gladness that was used to describe the ministry of Jesus in Hebrews 1 verse 9. What he's saying here is, at this table, in the Father's house, there is no shame. All of the children of the Father are welcome at the table. It's a picture of victory, intimacy. There's a picture of sufficiency as well. Look at the end of verse 5. My cup overflows. Uh, The word Hebrew word overflows there only appears twice in Scripture here. And in Psalm 66, 12, where he uses it this way, we went through fire and through water, yet you brought us out into a place of abundance, an overflowing abundance. God, your shepherd, my shepherd, is generous. It's a imagery of plenty. And so we can ask the reasonable question. I mean, let's let's where the rubber meets the road, or to get kind of antiquated in the phraseology, let's talk turkey. What about when I get through life and I have a need that isn't getting met or didn't get met, well, then you really didn't need it. If you had needed it, God would have given it to you. I didn't need for my beloved Margie to be with me longer than 28 years. Again, we go back to what we read before. God will not withhold any good gift to those who love him, to those who fear his name. Beloved, my shepherd is sovereign over every breath, over every heartbreat, over every electrical charge, over every cancer cell, over every sarcoidosis cell. He is sovereign over all of it. There is not one <laughs> renegade molecule in the entire universe. And so, look at verse 6. Surely, goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And the Hebrew verb there, it's not just that goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, that goodness and loving and kindness will pursue me all the days of my life. It's kind of like if you think of a wealthy person or a person of royalty, they never go anywhere without bodyguards. What he's saying here is just like two bodyguards following the rich dude around, so goodness and loving and kindness will follow me all the days of my life. Goodness supplies my needs, and loving and kindness blots out my sins. Again, all the days of my life, the bright days and the black days, the days of fasting and the days of feasting, all are good and right, all are different paths of righteousness for his namesake and for my joy. Do you remember what the author of Hebrews said in chapter 13, verse 5? He himself has said, he was rehearsing the promise of God, I will never desert you nor will I ever forsake you. So this would include through the green pastures of plenty on the side of eternity and through the dark valleys of poverty, a poverty of soul and spirit. And someday I will die. So will you. Otherwise, the end of this psalm makes no sense. Look at the end of verse 6. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Ask yourself, why would a shepherd lead a sheep through a dark and dangerous valley to get to someplace better, to get to new and better pastures? But here in the imagery of the host, it's one thing to go into somebody's house. It's a whole nother thing to go into somebody's house and live there the rest of your life. Beloved, when you go to your father's house, you never have to leave. That's Psalm 27 four, David, one thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Another choice, choice uh, quote from Spurgeon, he said this, it is a sweet and blessed event which will occur to all believers in God's own time. Pause there for a second. Beloved, I, and this isn't the exactly correct usage of the word immortal, but for lack of a better, I am immortal. I am invulnerable until my day comes up. My days are numbered. Your days are numbered. You are immortal. You are invulnerable until that day. It is a sweet and blessed event which will occur to all believers in God's own time, the going home to be with Jesus. In a few more years, Spurgeon continues, the Lord's soldiers who are now fighting the good fight of faith will have done with conflict and have entered into the joy of their Lord. How frequently does the wearied pilgrim put up the prayer, oh, that I had wings like a dove, for then I would fly away and be at rest. But Christ doesn't pray like that. He leaves us in his Father's hands until, like shocks of corn fully ripe, we shall each be gathered into our Master's garner. Beloved, This is the word of God, Psalm 23. These are the promises of my great shepherd to me, of your great shepherd to you, if you are following Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. These are the promises from the God who is the God of the living, in whom there is no death, in whom those we call dead in Christ are truly alive. May we thank God again and again for the victory over death through Jesus Christ, who is alive forevermore and gives life freely to anyone who believes in him. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy. Thank you, Lord, for... The Bible, thank you for these words penned through King David some 3,000 years ago. Thank you, Lord, that they ring true, as true now as they did then, because your word never perishes. It always accomplishes what what you purpose for it. Father, bless our hearts, bless our minds, bless our hands, bless our feet, bless our eyes, bless our tongues. Sanctify us with these good words for our internal joy, for our sanctification, for our witness to a lost and dying world, for our ministries of love to one another. And it is for your glory and honor. And again, Lord, thank you so much for letting me preach these sermons this morning. Thank you for each and every person here this morning that they are here by divine sovereign decree for a purpose. And it's for your glory and for our joy that we pray. Amen.